0: Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. This weekend, an anonymous Conservative MP in the kind of hateful and lurid language they tend to prefer said we have entered the killing zone when it comes to Brexit. So we're going to talk about who is really at risk of catastrophe and where does the risk come from? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, the magazine that publishes its political analysis in between essays on art and history, philosophy and technology, Princess Margaret or the Garden of Eden. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash talking for a reading list of similarly eclectic pieces to accompany today's episode and a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. Six months of the LRB for just £1 an issue. We have Helen Thompson with us, Chris Bickerton. It's a pleasure as well to welcome back Diane Coyle, economist and professor of public policy here in Cambridge. So there was that whole set of anonymous briefings and some of the language was even worse than it is. You'd have thought they might have learnt from when George Osborne said that he wanted to chop Mrs May up, that it's not a good look to talk like that. So we're not going to talk about the sort of killing language, but there are lots of other phrases that are being bandied around here. And I'm going to offer a few about worst case scenarios, just how bad this could get. So one comes out of some conversations I had in Denmark. I'm sure they're not representative conversations, but I was still struck by the force with which this was said. When I was there a couple of weeks ago, a number of people said to me, how is Britain coping with its national humiliation? The thought being that the Brexit negotiations have completely humiliated Britain. And I said, are we being humiliated? I hadn't kind of picked that up. And that seemed to provoke even more pleasure, the thought that we hadn't even noticed that we were being humiliated. So are we, Chris, being humiliated? Is this a nationally humiliating experience that we're going through?
1: I don't think so. I mean, there's a fair bit of schadenfreude around, I think. Um, and
0: the Danish word for that is... No idea. <laughs> no <meaning. laughs> Um
1: So I think that's what you're describing. What I'm often struck by is not so much people taking pleasure in the British experience, but it not being an issue. So, you know, Brexit is forefront of people's minds, I think, certainly in this country. But I think in the rest of Europe, it is simply much less of a discussion point to the point of it being non-existent in debate whatsoever. I should um,
0: say, I suspect in Denmark, there's a more of an interest maybe than in other places because Denmark has its own complicated relationship with the EU.
1: That's right. And sort of has negotiated opt-outs and was a sort of a close cousin of the UK in that sense. So maybe it's a sort of, this is what it would have happened, you know, There us. but
0: for the grace of God.
1: That's right. Humiliation, I think, is not really the right way of putting it, I think. Has the UK been successful so far in its negotiations? Who's won out, if you like, in the sort of tussle? That's a real subject for discussion. I think the UK, I've always said this, the UK started out absolutely on the wrong foot it triggered Article 50 much too early. And I think in a negotiation strategy with the European Union, if you're unwilling to walk away, you will never negotiate successfully. And the UK has simply never been willing to walk away in a meaningful sense. So I think it was inevitable that it would find itself on the back foot in negotiations. So
0: I think what's trying to be conveyed by the thought of humiliation is that this is a Partly the feeling is there are delusions of grandeur going on here. But this is a country that was asserting what it thought was its power and its autonomy. And it's discovering that it does not have the power and autonomy that it thought it had. And to do that in public, whether it's a person or a country, to be shown up to have delusions about how much control you have over your own affairs is humiliating. That's the thought.
2: Well, I suppose there's some comfort in the fact that other European countries have their own preoccupations too. You know, Italy is not in a happy place economically. The politics of the, the eastern countries is troubling. So I guess that tempers any concern about our humiliation.
0: You don't think that we, we have been seen, even in places where they have their other concerns, to have overreached here? I mean, that's the thought that we, unlike other European countries, which are going through their travails we're the ones who didn't understand the limits of our power.
3: Well, I think there's two different things going on here. I think there is a way in which there are plenty of people in other European countries who do think in these terms there's an article, a very strange article, in a number of ways in De Spiegel, at the moment, basically saying, you know, Britain's become a laughing stock, and, you know, this once pragmatic country has got these delusions of grandeur and it's all hubris trying to exercise power that doesn't exist. So I think that, you know, there is a take out there in those terms and it certainly is the case as chris has said that there's nothing that could be said to have vindicated britain's negotiating strategy thus far i think though that the other side of it really is is that the difficulty that many continental europeans have in understanding why brexit came about and what it's about so that in terms of the coalition of leave voters this always seemed to me to be like much more about refusing consent to the European Union for one reason or another in fact quite a lot of different reasons and then what happened was is that the British government accepted that the referendum was going to be at least then they accepted the referendum was going to be final that Britain really was going to leave the European Union so it accepted the geopolitical consequences of the decision of its domestic electorate and I think that that is quite unfathomable in a number of other European political cultures, is, is that this idea that consent really does matter, and that if you don't have it, you can't proceed, is not something that's there to the fore in, say, German politics. Well, I don't know enough about Danish politics to make a
0: not a, do I, I should ask
3: claim about that. But you know, this stuff has a long history in in Britain. The British governments have tended to be, and the English crown before that, have tended to be quite responsive to domestic rebellious discontent and the different forms in which it has taken. Now, the government now has been trying to work out how to deal with that in a pretty difficult international political environment, made more complicated for Britain, I think, by Trump's election to the, the presidency and then the pressure that Trump himself has been putting on the European Union. And it must be said, I think, that Trump's pressure on European Union countries, including Germany individually, has been a lot more successful than Britain's negotiating strategy has thus far been. So I think you can say Trump's more... Effective disruption actually adds to the sense of Britain not getting anywhere very successfully, thus far at least, in terms of negotiating an outcome. But the fundamental thing that's going on, it seems to me that's incomprehensible to some, is the fact that the British government was prepared to accept the outcome of the referendum and act upon it.
0: But couldn't you put it the other way that actually this isn't about a country that's deluded about its own power, but this is a country that's deluded about the extent that consent can be the primary motivation in international politics and the driver of this that what you're seeing is a government that's accepted that its people is no longer willing to offer consent to the arrangements of the European Union but it hasn't thought through how that then becomes its own capacity to I act I think
3: that you can make that argument but I think you can make the argument the exact opposite way round that the british case is grappled with something that others, are, the long, others are... Long, are a long, long way from facing But are they
0: going to have to face it?
2: Well, I agree that there are a lot of people around Europe are laughing at us and I've come across this in many other countries apart from Denmark. But isn't it a kind of nervous laughter because many of those countries have the same fractures that we do and that gave right to the, um, the very narrow vote in the referendum?
1: I think Diane's right. I think um, people look at Brexit through their own experiences. I think that's pretty natural. And what you have in... The history, certainly, of European integration over the last 20 years has been quite a lot of contestation, quite a few doubts. You've had votes that have not been binding and have been reversed in relationship to to treaty changes. So there's a very ambivalent relationship to the principle of consent. Consent defined in terms of the national population making a decision and then the executive respecting it or not. So in the case of Brexit, I suppose in some ways it may well be not so much baffling but sort of surprising that there's been a dogged determination to treat the referendum as final, and that if you filter that through different political systems where the experiences have been a bit more complex, not necessarily the same, then it does seem sort of puzzling, but also troubling. And from the European Union's perspective, I think it's quite a troubling prospect if consent is put to the forefront of its own affairs. I mean, I think the sentiments, the way people respond are very complex, and I don't deny that some people say ha 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 look at what you're doing I think they don't get what's happening I think a more measured response is to say well this is interesting it's a sign that you know something else is going on and it raises questions for the way the European Union will function in the future.
0: And is some of it because one way you can get around this thought that what's happening in Britain might be coming for us is to remind yourself that Britain is different and so there's a lot of that sort of sense that something strange is happening in Britain is being explained not because something strange is happening to our politics but because the British are strange and that seemed to be part of what I was picking up that this this is hubris and this is humiliation because it's a classic British story about imperial delusion.
2: But it's not the case that Euroscepticism is greater in Britain than any other country. No exactly
0: so that's one way that that people on the continent can explain this away, which is to say it's about British exceptionalism.
1: But also, it's not just on the continent. I think the extent to which the analysis of the Brexit result in this country relies very heavily on some sense that people are trying to relaunch sort of an imperial project as a way of explaining away, you know, what's going on. So I think that's not an insignificant part, but I think it's by no means the most important. And I
3: think in the terms of Leave voters, as opposed to a number of the conservative politicians in the Leave campaign, there's zero evidence that imperial nostalgia is part of what's going on here. I think that's actually more the other way round, in the sense of the argument about Britain must have outsized influence in the world is actually more common on the Remain side of the arguments actually than it is on the Leave side as I say, exempting a few conservative politicians from that. The other thing is, is this is about about the British exceptionalism issue, is, is that I think we can say, you know, there are some things that are exceptional about Britain's position. The circumstances in which it joined the European community in the first place, the position of the House of Commons, the principle of parliamentary sovereignty, the fact that it wasn't in the Euro, the fact that it was the only large country that didn't have transition arrangements on Eastern European accession in in 2004. So there was a story to tell which said, look, Britain never really fitted inside the European Union. that's essentially what Charles de Gaulle was saying when he didn't want Britain in the European economic community in the first place. But that kind of path of understanding Brexit, both internally, I think, and within the European Union or in parts of the European Union, was rejected because, in that sense, Brexit could have been more easily accommodated of kind of line of argument that said, look, Britain's membership was never going to work. But I think that the difficulty for the way in which it might induce, shall we say, what Diane's am nervous laughter elsewhere, is that actually Britain, in the end... ...should be able to leave the European Union without a great deal of difficulty. And I say that meaning over the long term, I don't mean the short term... ...because clearly there can be a huge amount of catastrophic disruption in the short term. And it can do so because it's got its own currency. If one of the other countries that's in the euro gets into the same level of difficulty with consent... ...then that's a whole other problem. And I think we're beginning to see that playing out in Italy. Now, Italy's got some cards to play in all this, it's not. it's not Greece... But in some sense, Britain is an easy, comparatively easy case for thinking about how this consent dynamic plays out through time. But you put in consent against Euro membership and all the debt that goes with that, and I don't think anybody really knows how to start thinking about that. And that, I think, is where there is reason for others to worry about where the more general phenomenon of Euroscepticism might be going
0: okay let's pick up on a few other worst case scenarios so you had a phrase there catastrophic disruption even if it's only in the short term so diane we don't hear much about project fear anymore it was thought to have been sort of exposed by the months after the referendum as being overblown but the rumbling has always been there that in the background of whatever these negotiations are going to result in are some really really serious economic risks project uh,
2: fear is morphing into project catastrophe is it when um, <laughs> Oh, that's cheery. Well, I'm not particularly pessimistic by nature, but I have started stockpiling. And when we first had the vote, I thought, OK, the economy is going to be a little bit worse than it would otherwise have been for the transition period, but economies adjust, and so the reason to be upset if you're a Remainer is the emotional one about your identity and citizenship. And as it has uh, gone on, and it turns out the government couldn't negotiate its way into a paper bag
0: so not even out of a paper bag into a paper paper bag bag.
2: i have become more and more concerned about the economic disruption and i think the people debating among themselves in the government about what kind of deal we want simply don't understand the character of trade now And it isn't only that a lot of trade is services, and that's why we have a surplus, whereas we have a deficit in goods. It's the character of the goods trade that we import. About two-thirds of the goods that we import are inputs into things that we make. So if we don't import them without friction and cost, we can't export either. The scale of the disruption that is possible now is simply... Catastrophic. As I ate my cereal this morning, there was a story in the Financial Times saying the government is commissioning a flotilla of boats to bring goods like medicines and radioactive isotopes and food over from continental Europe because Dover will only be able to operate at at most a quarter of its capacity given the frictions it's going to introduce. This is going to make the economy grind to a halt because we have a just-in-time economy, throughout the whole production chain, all the way to things that you buy in the shops, we're going to run out of stuff really quickly. And lots of people will lose their jobs.
0: And when you say the politicians who are negotiating don't understand this, presumably, they are being advised by some people who are telling them this, including in the civil service. There's a complicated question going on at the moment about the politicisation as perceived by the politicians of the civil service. But are they simply discounting this? Do they think that this is as it were, project fear coming the other way back at them? Do you have a sense of what...
2: I think we need a psychologist to answer that, because, as you say, they must have been given relevant information about the scope of the possible disruption. And there are, of course, there's one group of economists who you can light on if you want not to worry about disruption, about a dozen of them, who make things up. So their latest report claims that more people work in the fishing industry than the car industry in the UK, when actually it's 12,000 versus more than half a million. So Many, many, many more people working in the car industry. And that's one of the ones that will be massively disrupted if the components that are imported to make cars can't come in. And people in the North East will lose their jobs and investments won't happen. So I'm now really concerned about what's going to happen to the economy.
3: I don't think you need a psychologist, though, to understand what's going on here. I mean, I'm not making any dispute about the catastrophic disruption. The difficulty that the government is in is that unless that they agree in in the present negotiating position of the European Union to something that, in its implications for Northern Ireland, is never, ever going to get through the House of Commons, and wouldn't get, I don't believe, through the House of Commons, even if the DUP weren't providing support to the, the Conservative government then there isn't any way of proceeding to a deal. There's this issue that I think has haunted the referendum campaign itself. It's haunted that everything that's happened in our domestic political discourse since is if the EU isn't actually some actor in this with a political entity that has got a position and will respond in relation to the things that we do. And at the moment, there is not, from the point of view of the government, and I believe from the point of view of Parliament, something on offer that can be taken. Simply, there is no way that a British government will accept that Northern Ireland is going to be in perpetuity in a customs union and single market separate from Britain. Unless the British government can change that negotiating position of the EU, then we're going to be stuck here.
0: But at what point does the economic worst case scenario that Diane describes collide with these political imperatives? Because... If that happens, if the stockpiling scenario starts to play out, the politics changes well, very
3: I think you can see movement in this in terms of the obviously using this EU position as a shorthand and there 's not a single position. I think that merkel 's remarks last week, where she called for creativity on both sides suggest that Merkel really really does not want this no deal scenario because it 's also extremely difficult for German car makers when we once we go down this road. I'm actually more optimistic that compromises will lead to an agreement. I'm more pessimistic about whether that can be got through the House of Commons. fact, I'm a bit more optimistic than I was last week. But I think we've got to separate this out into two different things. Is it possible for there to be some compromise between the two positions of the British government and the EU at the moment? I think the answer to that is yes. yes. Is it possible for that then to get through the House of Commons? I think that that issue is a lot more complicated to think about.
0: And Dan, before I ask Chris what he thinks, just to be clear... so we're talking about worst case scenarios here. So there's a no deal worst case scenario. Mm. But as you move back up the various kinds of options that fall short of the status quo, at what point does it become okay in your mind?
2: There's going to be some long term damage anyway, just from loss of investment that's already occurring. And many more companies will be um, moving activities and moving their investment plans already. I agree with Helen that some agreement would be possible that there is actually willingness on, on the EU side to make it less potentially catastrophic than it could be. And the closer we get to customs union and single market, I don't think there's a particular dividing line, but the closer we get to that, then the less catastrophic it becomes.
0: So in your mind, every step away from where we are now is a step towards economic uh, bads
2: there comes some point when the supply chains don't work and I don't think there's any signs about what that point is.
1: I think it's certainly the case that we're reaching a sort of end game in the negotiations and that it's not surprising that there's a sort of a ratcheting up of what's at stake because that has quite an important effect on both sides. On the UK side it might make a deal that might have seemed unacceptable more acceptable both for the government, for the MPs, for the House of Commons and for people observing it from the UK side. On the EU side, it may make some sort of compromise more acceptable as well. And we have to remember that the report that Diana was mentioning that was in the FT this morning. What happens on the British side in Dover is not the problem. It's that checks would be enforced on the French side, which is what would slow things down. And so it's the extent to which the European Union responds in a way that enforces whatever the no-deal implications are for the EU other decisive thing. The UK could simply decide to not proceed with things that it thinks would slow down trade. But if the European Union decides to enforce the outcome of no deal, then you have many of the problems. So it's also about the responses of the European Union, not just what happens in the UK.
2: These are such finely tuned supply chains that any friction can be sure, straight so down. So this
1: is the other issue is I think the issue about the extent to which the kind of economies that we have at the moment are ones that are very vulnerable to any kind of change. Change. For me, that's certainly significant. I think the UK economy is characterised by supply chains that are excessively spread out across all sorts of different places, which means that there's less robustness, I think, to the UK economy and also means that a lot of economic activity is located in other places and then certain things are done in the UK and then goods are shipped elsewhere. Uh, there's an opportunity to change that. But for me, it seems fundamentally problematic if we're in a situation where we say any departure from the status quo in economic terms is a short sort of step away from various sort of iterations of bad to catastrophic. Because then you say, well, how does any government implement any change in their economy? How do people decide that they want to have a different kind of economy? We're in a a scenario where change is simply associated with catastrophe. And that I simply don't buy. I just don't think that that's the case. I think um, that's a certain attitude towards change, which is conservative, I think. Um,
2: well, economies change all the time, so I'm certainly not trying to say that. But then that points you to a slower adjustment or a longer transition period. It's the, it's the cliff edge nature of what might happen that is potentially catastrophic.
1: That's right. Nobody, I think,
2: realised at the end of March
1: 2017, where Article 50 was triggered, that we were embarking on quite a fundamental process of economic transformation under a timeline that was absolutely impossible to honour. And it was an entirely dysfunctional way of taking an economy out of an integrated regional economy. This no deal sort of for me, it's a kind of still a 50-50 thing, is a product of the negotiations, but also the way in which the negotiations proceeded under this very difficult timeline. But the UK government, I think, is culpable because from the very moment it triggered Article 50, it should have undertaken extensive and very radical plans for preparing for a no deal.
0: Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books.
2: Ready to pop the question?
0: Can I just ask, Diane mentioned, the other side of this, which is you will find some people who will tell you it's not going to be nearly so bad. And we are in a world now where you can find your preferred expert who will tell you it's going to be okay. If we think again about the psychology of this, how much of that is part of the problem here? Because you're both describing the need to face reality. And yet there does seem still to be some unreality in some of the political positions that are being adopted on the Brexit side.
2: I think part of the issue is that as soon as you start talking about Norway and Canada++ and all the intricate details of trade negotiations, everybody switches off. It's, and it's not as complicated as it can easily seem to be.
0: But also, as you describe it, there are people who will simply give you the fantasy that will allow you to continue on your reckless path, aren't there?
1: No, I think what you're describing is something else. I think you're describing people's response to what they feel have been misjudgments in the past. You know, so if you were told, and if you thought genuinely, OK, we're told that the economy is going to simply bomb after the referendum result if we vote to leave, and then you think, well, hang on, this is clearly not happening, you then think, well, these economic models that predict this and that, how much credence should I give to them? So I think there's a willingness now to be a bit more sceptical of this idea that just round the corner it's catastrophe. What I think is probably important is to realize that we're not in July 2016. We are now just a few months off, leaving the European Union. The way the negotiations have been played out make a no-deal scenario reasonably likely. The critical factor is the government has been unwilling to prepare in any systematic fashion for no-deal, and is only doing so very late on in a rather haphazard way.
0: So then one more question to Diane. Is there any preparation for no-deal that would really make a significant difference? I mean, what you described seemed to be something that is a situation over which the government effectively has lost control.
2: The only way to deal with it now would be to have an agreement about a long transition period so that the preparations that Chris is talking about could, could occur.
3: I mean, I think that there was always going to be a case for a relatively long transition if you just thought about this in terms of, like, how do you deal with Britain leaving the European Union in straightforward economic terms? The problem of a longer transition in political terms is is the lack of trust that there would be in it, because of that clear campaign by some, including you know, some of Parliament, to stop Brexit, and that it would simply be seen as a means of keeping us in the European Union and buying time. And this is where I think how many different things are going on for a state in withdrawing from the European Union really comes to the fore. Because on the one hand, Britain, as Chris and Diana said, it's changing its economic relationship with European Union. On the other hand, it's changing its own constitutional order, which had become completely bound up with being a member of the European Union. And it was also changing our position as citizens, where we're going to stop being European Union citizens and only be British citizens. And that has got identity implications for lots of people. That's an awful lot of change that is being converged into one thing. Now, I think that the constitutional one, I think, is underestimated because what we've got to do is find a way of legitimating the constitutional order that is going to come for us going back to not being in the European Union. And that is going to be very difficult, regardless of the economic outcome. But it's going to be extremely difficult if it ends up with no deal and a large amount of damage in the short term. But it's also going to be quite difficult, in fact, I think very difficult, if you have a longer transition period, and then that longer transition period is used by those who want to keep Britain in the European Union for that purpose, because then the transition period is going to be seen as something that is just a Trojan horse for Britain staying in the European Union.
0: Okay, then let's do the politics of this, come back to the economics as it impinges on it. So another word that was used at the weekend, amid all the terrible talk about different ways of killing Theresa May, was that this poses an existential threat to the Conservative Party, that if the Conservative Party gets this wrong, it could be finished. And people often say this in democratic politics, and I tend to discount it, except not so much these days, because parties are having the rug pulled out from under them around the world. And it's not like it might have been 20 or 30 years ago. It's not like Black Wednesday in the ERM, where there's a kind of a sense that even if you are about to enter sort of 10 plus years of the voters not trusting you, there will be time to come back. And parties that completely forfeit trust these days do risk oblivion, I think. Do you think there is a serious risk for the Conservative Party that this goes wrong, and they can never come back? I mean, I know Britain is a broadly conservative country, and it's going to need a party insofar as we have a democracy of the centre right. But this party, the longest lasting and most successful election winning machine in world democratic history, is it on the brink?
1: Make or break is maybe the way to put it. I think if the Conservative Party is able to position itself such that it is clearly committed to implementing the result of the referendum, come what may, even if it makes it clear that this may take a little bit longer than people would wish in order to make it a smoother process, but it will honour the result of the referendum, when it comes to the next general election that would put people in a position where even if they might have been much more inclined to vote Labour would vote Conservative because they are the party that seems most committed to doing that. That's sort of the sort of the make part of the make or break. If we get to the situation where it's the complete breakdown in the negotiation there's an impasse or if Theresa May bring something which you then can't get through Parliament. The question is whether the Conservative Party is blamed for this or whether the blame is shared across the political class, across the political establishment and also is partly laid at the door of the European Union. I think people would not just say this is entirely the Tories fault. That doesn't seem to me a reasonable position to hold, I don't think that a Labour government would have necessarily managed to do uh, any better. You have
0: faith in people being reasonable.
1: I
3: completely take
1: at least one part of what Chris has said
3: is, is, and I think you can see the beginnings of, of that position of where the, the Tory party becomes the party that is about honouring the referendum result. Not about being pro-Brexit, but about honouring the, the referendum result. And that was a position that Theresa May had got herself into about a month before the general election last time, when they were able to win that by-election in Cumbria and do very well in that one, in Stoke. And, you know, there was a scenario in which the Conservatives were going to end up in that general election with almost all or the equivalent, because it wasn't obviously the same voters, of the Leave votes, so are somewhere between 48 and 50% of the voters. There was a moment, I think, in the general election where that campaign, at the beginning, where that was possible. It fell away from various numbers of reasons to do with Theresa May's poor performance, and particularly, I think, to do with social care. So I think that you can see a scenario in which the Conservatives, depending on how the endgame absolutely actually plays out, where it becomes the honour the referendum party. I think the problem for the Conservatives is just the factionalisation internally within the party and just how destructive, including just at the level of personal relationships, what has happened over the last few years has been. Now, I think if Labour had been in power at this time, I don't think it would have been any different because Labour is just as actually divided about Brexit amongst its politicians and would have struggled in exactly the same way. And I think that there is a chance that, as Chris says, that the, the blame will be directed at the political class quite generally as opposed to it being party political, particularly amongst Leave voters. Because, you know, you can't really get round the fact that it is pretty obvious that you know significant people in the to use that term, the political class, I know you don't like it, have been trying to stop Brexit. And that that has
2: played a part in the negotiating impasse that has been reached. But is it not the case that voters don't like seeing such wide divisions within parties, so both Labour and Conservatives yeah. will get punished for that in some way?
0: Well, then who are people going to vote for?
2: It's, Many so- people are asking themselves that question. <laughs> <It's>,
1: <laughs> I think the response could be in, you know, a disenchantment with the ability of politics as a thing, as a system, as a field to function, in which case people can simply opt out of it, get disenchanted and sort of apathetic. Creating an entirely new party. I mean, it's, David, you've mentioned before, we're in an age where this is happening. is happening in many places. Sometimes it's happening so incredibly fast that it's difficult to even believe, but it does happen. Old parties just get pushed to the side, something entirely new, cobbled together, and is incredibly successful in elections. Oh, I find it hard to believe that the UK, however particular its own political traditions might be that it is entirely immune from that
2: does it put the focus more on the nations and the big cities politics where at least three of the english cities now have very effective mayors
0: well as, as where people people genuinely start looking outside westminster for political leadership
2: that's a thought
3: i mean i think you've got to think about is what's happening in in countries where i've got some version of two-party systems and i know we've had in the past well, until recently, two-and-a-half party systems plus Scotland, which is a whole other complication in this, but leaving Scotland out of it for the minute. The clear case whether a, a two-party system where something very disruptive has happened is the United States, where both parties got into difficulty for different reasons. The Democrats' case was camouflaged by Obama's personal success. And then what happened is, is one of the parties was effectively taken over by an insurgent candidate from within whereas if you look at what's happened in Germany say where the dominant two-party system is breaking down he's moving towards a multi-party system but you know the German electoral system supports that it's not going to support that here so I think you might then be looking at insurgency within one of the parties now we've already got an insurgency of a kind within the Labour Party from Corbyn's leadership but we know that that hasn't penetrated that far within the parliamentary party so in some sense the interesting question becomes okay What happens to the Conservative Party in in terms of an insurgent candidacy? Does it go off in a kind of Trump-like direction under this kind of political pressure? I don't know what the answer to that is, but I think that's kind of the question.
0: One more thought about the Conservatives. So the problem is, exactly as you've described, that you see this government in desperate trouble and you immediately think, well, who would be able to do this better? And every group or coalition you think of, there are reasons for thinking it would be even worse. So whether it was the hard Brexiteers, whether it was the softer semi-Remainers in the Tory party, whether it was a Labour government, whether it was some kind of coalition. And so it's that sort of Sherlock Holmes things, that you, you rule out all of the things that seem impossible, and then you're just left with Theresa May again. And it must at least be possible that actually, much derided as she is, I think the latest poll had 2% of people thinking that she was having a successful negotiation. She's the only person who can actually Including on the questions, uh, holding things up in Ireland. She's the only person who can actually take us from here to somewhere else. Everything else the blocks are even greater
3: i think she is occupying the literal center ground it's a
0: t- and it's a i'll tell people that helen moved her arms apart as she described that but it's a very as people say it's like a little precipice on the edge of something and she's just tiptoeing along. i mean
3: you know she's trying to warn the result of the referendum she's trying to say that there's a red line over freedom of movement she won't let northern ireland be into a separate customs and regulatory environment and the rest Uh, and she wants a deal. And that is
2: probably where... But there's no overlap in that Venn diagram.
3: (laughs) So, in fact, your hands should
0: be actually touching each other. The the point being is,
3: though, this is where, as I say, it's always got to be filtered through what the EU is actually doing in this. And the European Union has taken a very strident stand on the question of the Irish border and the response it wants via the backstop to the Irish border. If Theresa May cannot deliver something that can get through the House of Commons, I think it ultimately will be because the EU has taken that stand. And I'm, I'm not making a judgment there about it one way or another, but that is not something that was in the negotiating. If we go back to the way things looked in March 2017 when there was a different government in Dublin, this is not necessarily a path that could have been anticipated. Now, some people would say, well, that's naive, because you could see that the European Union um, would use the Irish question as a way of trying to either to humiliate Britain or to try to keep Britain in the European Union by default. But on the second, I still think it's a very open question whether the governments that matter here, the French and the German, really do want to keep Britain in the European Union.
0: Two more things, two other Brexit developments. One, I can't talk about because it makes me too... I'll get too agitated which is Nick Clegg taking a job at Facebook so we won't discuss that the other one is the six seven hundred thousand people who marched on Saturday and there clearly is and in a town like Cambridge you hear it all the time there are a lot of people who genuinely believe that this can be prevented from happening and that whether it's a people's vote or whatever that we we are as we approach the moment of truth also going to get an option to somehow undo this Now, who knows if that's even conceivable, but there is another worst case scenario. So in that version of Brexit politics, people never talk about sort of what could go wrong if the Remainers got their way. And when they do, they they sort of assume that there would be massive resentment and possibly even resistance from Brexiteers. But I also have this thought to go back to what Diane said earlier, that European politics is not waiting on us and it's unfolding at a remarkable pace. I have a real anxiety about a Britain undoing the thing that it thought it did just at the moment where something really bad happens to the European project, whether it's Italy or whatever. There is almost the nightmare scenario where we decide we want back in at the moment where this thing starts to fall apart. I mean, there are huge risks, it seems to me, both ways, aren't there? If Europe is facing two challenges, one of which is actually relatively tractable, which is Britain, and the other of which is, for it, existential, which is Italy, what would a second referendum be like
2: when the other one starts to bite? There are huge risks, whatever happens because of the underlying social and economic fractures in the European economies. And the fact that we didn't tackle for decades the costs that economic change and technology the wreckage of the northern and um, midlands economies created by that and I think that's true certainly true of France and um, and Germany as well and we are paying that price and until those fractures are addressed there are just risks for everybody in whatever happens.
1: I think the the European Union is sat on a whole bunch of different problems there's no doubt about it but its capacity to adapt, I think, is quite high. Certainly, I mean, it's very monolithic in its relationship to outside actors. But internally, it has a high capacity to differentiate. It's already been doing that for a long time. I think I'm much more sanguine about its ability to survive. What it becomes is an open question, but its ability to exist as, as a thing. So I don't think the UK would find itself in a position to wanting to to rejoin something which was literally up in sort of flames. I think it would be wanting to join a flawed project, and so it shouldn't do it, but um the thing itself, I think, is unlikely to to disappear from one day to the next. It would be a kind of a slow process of internal erosion, I think, but the issue about the the remain and the kind of the march, I think people were quite right to go on the march and to march in large numbers for what they you know believe in i mean there's a lot of opposition to what's happening people would like things to be different so I think that's what was being expressed as a practical sort of input into the next six months I don't really see it I may be missing something but it seems to me that it's you know if the deal goes to the commons and is rejected we're in a sort of an entirely open moment politically and in that way is the kind of the question of the UK's relationship to the EU becomes subsumed in the future of British politics itself. Helen you get the last word.
3: I think that this goes to the heart of what's been the problem for those who want to stop Brexit from the start is that they don't have a strategy for Britain being inside the European Union that actually don't even even give it much thought I don't think there is an assumption that things can go back to the way that they were before the 23rd of June 2016 and since then the European Union has had to deal with a set of new challenges in which, to a considerable degree, Britain is relevant to. And I think if you if you look at the kind of if you like the trigger causes, the immediate trigger causes of the 2016 vote here, I think you can say that there was one thing about Britain's relationship with the European Union that really pushed, in certain circumstances, which was the eurozone going back into recession 2011 to 2013, to cause the problem. And that is, is you had the British economy that was recovering you've got the Eurozone crisis, particularly in Southern Europe, you get significant migration out of those periphery Southern European economies into Britain, UKIP puts pressure on Cameron. So if you go back to conditions of severe Eurozone crisis, you are going to get the same thing if freedom of movement still exists in this country, assuming that the British economy is is doing better at that point than the Eurozone. So you just go back to where where we started. The other thing that's interesting is, is that two things happened in 2015 that Britain actually wasn't directly affected by, that the EU did. The first was the handling by the Eurozone authorities of the Greeks in the summer of 2015, and the third was Merkel's handling of the migrant crisis in which Britain had opt-outs of those. So it didn't have an obligation to accept uh, refugees and migrants like others did under the rules. And those two things still did significant damage to the Remain cause. So watching the EU behave, if you like, at moments of crisis is not something that goes down well with a significant number of British voters, it would seem, even when British interests weren't directly at stake. And they are at stake in terms of the freedom of movement issue, if and when the Eurozone economy goes back into crisis. And we can already see the beginnings of that in terms of what's going on in Italy, is the whole question of how the ECB is going to end quantitative easing, it's got to play itself out and I cannot see how it plays itself out in ways that don't prove extremely difficult for the eurozone
0: as Diane just said we could talk about this all day we're going to come back to Italy we need to talk much much more about what's going on there but for the next couple of weeks it's back to a Trump land we're going to talk to the historian Sarah Churchwell about the history of America first and then we've got our special live post-midterm breakfast event when we all say what we think is happening on no sleep Anyone in Cambridge who might like to come along will tweet how to get tickets for that at tppodcast underscore. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics.
1: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter,